Welcome to the November edition of the History Today podcast. I'm Catherine Hadley, the website editor. In this month's show, I talked to Colin Jones about previously unseen caricatures of Madame de Pompadour. It was a book that was deliberately kept quiet. It was never mentioned in the inventory for for his will. It seems to have passed unknown through till about the 1820s or 1830s. I also spoke to David Wilson, the great-nephew of Edward Wilson, who accompanied Captain Scott on his expedition. That incredible photographic archive just got split up and and it can't ever be recreated, uh, which is a huge shame. And I spoke to Tim Grady about the remembrance of the Jewish soldiers who fought for Germany in the First World War. One would would think or perhaps imagine that the memory of these soldiers was obliterated, you, you suggest, quite quickly. First of all, I interviewed Colin Jones, who's Professor of History at Queen Mary University of London, and also the author of the feature article of this month's issue of the magazine. Colin Jones is working on a project researching previously unknown caricatures of Madame de Pompadour, who was Louis XV's favourite mistress. I asked him how he came across this unknown collection of caricatures and what they tell us about contemporary views of Madame de Pompadour. It was sheer uh, uh, serendipity, really, that I came across it. But in t- 2002, I was working on the uh, National Gallery exhibition on Madame de Pompadour. And uh, in Wadston Manor in Buckinghamshire, which is a country house yeah. part run by the National Trust, part by a Rothschild uh, a family trust, um, they have quite a lot of things to do with Madame de Pompadour, including a Boucher portrait. So I was going down there to look at it anyway. And the uh, curator of uh, French uh, drawings, Humphrey Wine, said they have this very unusual book there as well, which I think has some Madame de Pompadour drawings you'll be rather surprised at. I didn't know anything about it, so I went down there and saw this little book, quite a small little book, um, a book of drawings, never been published. uh, And I think I said, and just about everyone else who I know who has looked at it since, has said, gosh, how incredibly surprising. It's quite unlike anything else that we've seen, really, from, from that period. Uh, of 18th century uh, France. In France in the 18th century, uh, there's visual censorship as well as textual uh, mm. censorship. Um, so whereas in, in, in England you've got you know, the caricatures and uh, comic drawings and scatological uh, prints of Gilray and Rowlands and all the rest of it, in France that just does not happen very much mm. at all uh, until 1789. There's a bit of clandestine pornography that goes on in the 18th century, but nothing quite like this, which is more actually scatological and humorous uh, than pornographic and erotic. And another thing that seems really surprising about it is that, so they're all quite, I mean, some of them are quite harsh caricatures of Madame de Pompadour, um, and yet it seems that she was very, because she came from a, a different social class, she was very conscious of cultivating um, this image of herself. Um, and so it seems quite incredible that this book even came to be published. And, I mean, how did it... And the other thing that's surprising, sorry, also, is that saint the author, sort of moved within the same circles that he was actually criticising. So what, why do you think he... This is a fascinating book, which it's uh, full of questions and uncertainties that we can only uh, guess at, really. 
he never actually owns up to, to doing it. But, but we know it's his handwriting. There's quizzes about him. There's a uh, very good drawing of him uh, uh, in the last couple of pages. Um, it clearly is, is, is by him. But what exactly he was up to with this, with this book of drawings is very uncertain. He's, he's from French um, luxury trades, essentially. He's an artisan, but a very successful one, an embroiderer, fancy embroiderer who's picked up, when he's still quite a, a young man, by, uh, by the royal court. He comes, um, does a lot of the fancy drapery and uh, clothing, embroidery for clothing for the royal family and for, for, for the uh, aristocracy. Uh, so he moves in those circles. He is very much a Parisian, it must be said. He, he's, uh, there's a sort of whiff of the streets about him and the humour of the streets as well in the book, which is one of the things that's so fascinating. So I think he, he, you know, you can take uh, Saint-Aubin off the streets of Paris, but you can't take the streets of Paris out of uh, Saint-Aubin. And when he goes to Versailles, he's still retained. He might move and be very polite and deferential. He must be, actually, in those circles to c- mm. keep those orders coming. But on the other hand, there's a sort of sense of the um, more down-at-earth, more uh, earthy um, uh, and gritty humour of the Parisian streets, who finds especially probably someone like Pompadour to be faintly ridiculous mm. uh, and stuck up. A parvenu, mm. she is from, uh, well, she's satirised at the time in the um, uh, in sort of b- b- polemics and uh, uh, songs and ditties as being from very poor stock and very, very lowly stock. It's not that lowly, actually, but uh, she has a quite an unusual background. But she's certainly promoted by the big financial clans that dominate the court at that particular time. In fact, many people think that you know, she's a front woman, in some ways, of these financial clans, that they put her the, in the way of Louis XV when they know, he's, uh, you know his marriage has gone bad and he's looking for mistress. Uh, and she acts, as, if you like, as a sort of uh, representative of mm-hmm. financial interests at court, which is one reason why he, he, he you know, he, he joins up with the, uh, the, the sort of criticisms that are quite current in uh, 18th century uh, Paris, but gives them this very sort of unusual and uh, sort of witty uh, visual form. Mm-hmm. A lot of the drawings are captioned as well. There are a lot of, uh, it, it's quite a sort of quizzical um, uh, book with... Um, deliberate uh, sort of questions which are left unanswered uh, which pre- well we think the way it was used actually is that Charles Germain in most of the drawings and most of the captions uh, but uh, and it was done over a period of about 30 years from the 1740s through to probably 1775 and over that period we think that this was like a family joke book that uh, they took out from time to time probably on like New Year's Day or times when there were family festivities and um, they just sort of sit around. Uh, Charles Germain would have done a drawing with, and perhaps done a sort of comic uh, uh, caption underneath it, and everyone had to guess what, what was uh, go- going on there. Um, it was only quite a small circle, we think, that was party and privy to this book. Um, we've identified a number of different uh, styles in the drawings, and just about, about 12 or 15 different, difficult to be sure exactly, different types of handwriting. Uh, so probably a dozen or so people involved. We know the brothers, the two brothers, who's uh, one an artist, uh, Gabriel, and the other uh, very well-known engraver, younger uh, brother, Augustin. They're certainly involved. But probably sort of friends from the same sort of milieu. And they had to be good friends because if this book had become known, uh, it would have been curtains for them. It would have ended his career 
uh, he and his family would have ended up in the Bastille, at and least that's... for some time. And uh, the book would have been burnt and we'd never have got it. Yeah. So this, it was a book that was deliberately kept quiet. Mm -hmm. It was never mentioned in the inventory for, the, for the, his will. It seems to have passed unknown through till about the 1820s or 1830s. By the end of the 19th century, we know it's in the uh, possession of a French connoisseur who is known to the Goncourt brothers. The Goncourt brothers are the great sort of connoisseurs of 18th century French mm. art. And they do actually a very interesting, uh, some interesting uh, writing on the Saint-Aubin brothers and actually do write about this book. When the architect, the, uh, the connoisseur uh, dies, he's also, in fact, uh, his name is Détailleur, he's also the architect of uh, Wadston Manor and a close friend of Ferdinand de Rothschild, okay. who built that manor. Uh, Rothschild buys the book, goes into their library, and it's effectively lost from sight. Um, one or two people seem to know it's there, but it's very, very rarely uh, consulted, uh, so and not really used by scholars since, since we got hold of it. Sorry, so it was never published as such. I mean, no, it was, no, no. It was just one copy. It's absolutely no. It was. It was. It, it couldn't have been published. Yeah. I mean, no, it, uh, it would have been very dangerous book to have been published. Yeah, and obviously no one was. Yeah, she wasn't aware of it. The court wasn't aware. Of it. I think that's the fun of it. That's a lot of the fun to take to make uh, drawings of um, people who are high and mighty to poke fun at them, and um, you know, in the rudest way sometimes, um, and them not to know. Uh, and then, of course, the next, uh, after the weekend, probably, he goes back and is very polite and deferential and all the rest of it. Yeah. And to what extent, then, do you, I mean, do you think it was really sort of a personal, really trying to criticise her? Or was it more a general criticism of the age and maybe there were things like the French public would generally perhaps quite critical of some of the failings of Louis XV's regime, like going to the Seven Years' War. I mean, was she just, was she maybe an unfortunate victim in that, in that sphere of events? A, a lot of the drawings actually are focused in the 1750s, particularly the early, uh, the, the late 1750s and early 1760s, which is the period of the Seven Years' War from 1756 to 1763. So certainly people are talking about the war, they're talking about why it's going badly, and um, he is not the only individual to think that Madame de Pompadour has some sort of responsibility there. I mean, this is widespread uh, uh, gossip in uh, Parisian and uh, French national circles, really, through sense, the 18th century. Then? Well, really, she, she has uh, played a big part in the, before the war in setting up the alliance with France's long traditional enemy, Austria. Uh, and forming an alliance with them. And she played a, a big part in that, in fact, and was personally uh, involved, uh, was personally known to the uh, Austrian envoy, Stahemberg, uh, and in fact, some of the negotiations took place at her, in her uh, private residence as well. So she was known for that. Then, of course, the war starts after that. Many people in French, uh, uh, French public feel that France is drawn unwittingly and uh, unwillingly into the war by the Austrian alliance, which th and then it goes very, very bad, and France starts losing, well, loses its empire, essentially, uh, uh, outside Europe, but also loses the terrible uh, battles in the late 1750s. So if one's looking around for, for um, uh, you know, scapegoats for this, then Madame de Pompadour is quite a handy one, and one who, moreover, is, is often scapegoated in contemporary public opinion. Mm. So do you think you can say... Um, or that you can ascertain somehow what Saint-Aubin's views of Madame de Pompadour really were? 
I, th I think that's the, I, the most difficult question of all. And I, I think he's, I actually think he's one of these people who um, keeps two things going in their head quite easily. It's quite interesting. He used to go, he and his brother Gabriel, who does it more, more than he, they used to go to auctions, art, you know, artworks. And uh, he used to jot down drawings and little writings in the margin of the uh, catalogues. And in one of these, it, he imagines himself as a as being in the auction as an actor in a play you know and he says we're all actor we're all acting and i'm an actor as well and i think he he sees himself as an actor out in uh, versailles uh, doing these things but i think he probably does that in paris as well you know he's from quite humble stock he's really really makes it because he's a superb luxury uh, artisan artisan uh, and so he can keep these sort of different parts of his head fairly, uh, fairly compartmentalised almost, one from the mm. other, without it being too much of a problem. So I don't want to essentialise uh, Charles Germain and say he's either this or either mm. that. Mm. He's someone who sort of hits the switches and plays around with the levels mm. uh, quite, quite interestingly. And I think that's, he likes it and he finds that fun. One of the people, one of the, his family say after him that he was really nice person, very likeable, very good with the ladies. It was absolutely at home wherever he went and was rather caustic and witty. And I think that's the sort of character that we get on looking at these drawings. Mm. Thank you very much. That was Colin Jones on Caricatures of Madame de Pompadour. I then interviewed David Wilson, the great nephew of Edward Wilson, who accompanied Scott on his Antarctic expedition a hundred years ago. David Wilson has just published a book of previously unseen photographs which were taken on the Scott expedition. I asked him to explain the history of the photographs and why they were only published a hundred years after the event. To really understand the context of the, of the, of the photographs, you need to go quite a long way back historically. Um, people forget that Captain Scott was a Royal Naval officer. And he thought like a Royal Naval officer and his decision-making processes you know, were based on the same form of training as are still used in the Royal Navy today. Um, and in those days, um, Royal Naval officers were taught to sketch um, as they explored the world. And you know, if the Royal Navy sort of conquered the world with cannons, um, it mastered it with pencil and paper. Um, and from Captain Cook onwards, there was a tradition of exploration art. Um, very often the big ex um, expeditions of exploration would take artists with them to record what was seen so that everyone back home could um, have images of the newfound lands and, and what have you. Um, and the Navy considered it so important that the officers were trained to sketch in those particular techniques, so the coastlines and so on, new coastlines could be sketched properly and the next officer down there would know more or less where they were sailing and so on. So Scott was brought up and trained in that tradition. Um, and his first Antarctic expedition, um, which was aboard Discovery, um, was right on the borderline between when that tradition of pencil and paper for recording uh, was just starting to be replaced by photography. But the techniques of photography still weren't um, really up to operations in cold environments. So he was sent south on that first expedition. Um, it wasn't officially a Royal Naval expedition, but it was a, a national Antarctic expedition, so it was a government expedition, and it was run on naval lines, um, to see whether there was a southern continent there. They didn't actually know whether there was an Antarctic continent or a series of islands or mm. what was actually in the blank hole on the map. Um, and he took with him plenty of cameras, which were operated by Lef under Lieutenant Skelton, um, and he also took with him an expedition artist, who happened to be my great-uncle, um, who was perhaps the last of the great expedition 
artists, and he painted, uh, uh, painted and drew yards and yards of topographical coastlines. I mean, some of the drawings are long, you know, long, yards long, sort of 20, 30 feet long, um, detailed drawings of the coastline that they found uh, down in the Antarctic and so on. Um, and when, when the expedition came, when that expedition came back, um, Scott was very determined that the photographs that had been taken should be published in a scientific volume. And he said, I want the biology photographs published on a page of biology, and I want the geology photos on pages to do with geology, and I want little maps to show where each of them was taken, and I want them produced in such and such a way, and so on. Uh, but it never happened, uh, partly because of lack of money, but also partly because the photographs just weren't that good as photographs. They're very interesting to us now, but photographically they weren't that interesting. Um, and the pencil and paper and the paintings were still better as scientific representations. Of, of geographical discovery. Um, but that set Scott to thinking how he might do it in the future. Um, the, so the roots of his photographs sort of come out of that tradition that, that sort of ends with the discovery expedition, if you like. Um, and when he decided to go back for his second expedition, um, the second expedition had two objectives. Um, one was uh, to, to conquer the South Pole for the British Empire, uh, which is the one everybody remembers, uh, but also an extensive scientific and exp uh, program and, and program of exploration. So he took with him the largest team of scientists that had been south um, up to that point. Um, and he took with him my great uncle by that point was the chief of the scientific staff as well as an expedition artist. Um, but critically, Scott invited a professional photographer to go with him on that second expedition. Um, so Cook had invited Hodges as a professional artist to improve the imagery for his expedition a couple of hundred years before. Scott now invited a professional photographer to go down and take charge of the photography. And, and that was it. I mean, you'll very often see in the books people saying, oh, well, he took a professional photographer because he wanted to make lots of money out of the photographs. So at that time, nobody really had much of a concept of the commercial possibilities. And Scott, I think, probably didn't really realise what was happening um, until the first winter um, of the expedition, when, they, when he insisted that everybody in each department from the expedition, so each of the geologists and biologists and so on, each gave a, a talk, so they had week, you know, regular lectures in the evenings to pass the, the winter hours away, um, so that each of the departments knew what each of the other departments were doing, if you like. Um, and Ponting gave a series of talks illustrated with his photographs that simply blew everybody away. Um, I don't think anyone had quite realised um, the quality of the images um, that were possible or could be achieved with a camera. And this, was, this is the point at which the camera replaces pencil and paper as the means of scientific record on an expedition. Right on that expedition, you've got the, the sort of first great pioneering polar photographer working alongside the last great pioneering polar artist, if you like, and they were, my great uncle and Ponting worked side by side, they were going to exhibit side by side when they got home, um, and so on. Um, anyway, as a result of, of, of Scott realising what was um, afoot, I don't think he'd have, he wouldn't have realised the full historical implications, but I mean, he obviously realised it was exciting. He asked Ponting to train uh, members, uh, officers from each of the sledge parties to photograph. Um, to make sure, because Ponting was only one man, there were lots of different exploring parties going out, some going off to the Western Mountains, others to different areas, one to the South Pole, of course. Everyone forgets that the South Pole was just one amongst several um, big um, exploring parties. Um, and Ponting agreed to train officers from each of the, of the parties. And the most enthusiastic of his pupils was Captain Scott. And Scott very rapidly developed 
an extraordinary talent for photography. Um, it's funny, when you look at his diary, it, 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 in, the actual diary is full of little sketches, and you don't get that in the published version, so you actually miss the fact that Scott had quite an artistic eye, and of course he married a sculptress. That's, this artistic side of Scott really never gets brought out at all. It's been one of the more interesting aspects of, the, of working on this book, I think. Um, but he, he moves from those sort of bumbling beginnings to being an absolutely uh, a photographer worthy of his teacher, if I could put it that way. He takes there are some of his, several of his photographs which are, which are as good as, as some of Ponting's photographs. So. so what what happened to these pictures then that he took? Scott returned his camera to base at the top of the Beardmore Glacier. The plan was always um, um, only to take one camera onto the South Pole, and so the photographic the, the big sort of exploration, the scientific work was done on the Beardmore Glacier. And then the cameras all got returned to base except for one to go onto the pole. So Scott returned his camera, leaving Birdie Bowers as the only photographer. So all his film and everything else got returned back to Cape Evans at that point. Um, and it was, it was developed in the hut. Uh, the pictures were developed in the hut. And, of course, Scott never returned to see his pictures. The, the history of the photographs is a little bit murky because the archive isn't terribly complete on the question, I have to be honest. But as best as I can ascertain... Um, once the expedition returned home all the photographs were collected together um, by the committee that was in charge of the expedition and a selection were chosen for publication Um, most of those were Pontings but also some other um, people's photographs um, and those included about um, 10 of Captain Scott's photographs Um, there are well over 100 in existence so they just chose 10 Um, they very quickly got very confused. So in Scott's last expedition, there are photographs taken by Captain Scott that are reproduced as having been taken by Frank Debenham, for example. So even the very earliest source material is, uh, published material is, is incorrectly attri- attributed for the photographer. And then every, all the pictures after two years, um, the agreements for the copyright usage for the expedition expired. Um, and at that point, for the first expedition, on discovery, a copy of every photograph was kept, and then the negatives were given back to the um, to the relative owners. Um, but for this expedition, that wasn't done. I think it was probably because it was the you know got caught up with the First World War and all the rest of it, and nobody really thought to do it. Um, so that incredible photographic archive just got split up, and and it can't ever be recreated, uh, which is a huge shame. Um, but for some reason, I I don't understand. Um, both the negatives of of Bowers and the negatives of Captain Scott, instead of being returned to their families, were returned to Ponting. And he didn't do very much with them for the next 20 or 30 years that he was alive. He dedicated his life to telling the story of Scott, um, and he made several versions of his film as cinema developed, so there was a silent version eventually made out of the little bits and then the talking version and so on. And uh, uh, So he very much helped to keep the, the, the Scott story alive through the various developments of the cinema. And, and he's an incredibly important figure in the development of British cinema as, as a result. Um, but he didn't really use the Scott photographs or the Bowers photographs, and I don't understand why, except that he was always a great respecter of other people's copyright. Um, and then when Ponting died, his, he was a terrible businessman and he left two conflicting wills um, and his estate was then declared insolvent by his doctors. So there was a fire sale and all his negatives and so on were sold to a photographic agency and Scott's and Bowers' negatives got tied up with that sale. So they then ended up in the archives of a photographic agency who again did nothing with them. 
um, presumably again for copyright reasons. Um, but, the, but the copyright on the photographs expired um, a little while ago, and they still did nothing with them. Um, and then they decided the agency sold them off um, at a sale in America um, about ten years ago, I think, uh, and they were bought by a private collector um, who recognised what the pictures actually were, because by this time, um, basically everybody thought that the photographs didn't exist. There, there are one or two quite well-known images, but most of them have just simply never been seen. Um, and I was having a drink, well, I was having a gin and tonic after a, a sale in London one day and, uh, with a group of collectors, and one of them turned to me and said, you'll never guess what I've got in my collection. And I said, oh, really? And, and he said, I have Captain Scott's own personal photographs. And I nearly choked on my gin. And the result is the, is the book that's, uh, that's coming out now. What do you think, um, how do you think Scott's remembered today? I don't think a lot of people, it, it's funny, uh, over, over about 40 years of age, and I will get a lot of people coming up to me and saying, Scott inspired me to be an explorer, your great uncle inspired me to be a doctor, um, the story inspired me to be an explorer, or a scientist, or a naturalist, or all sorts of different things. Um, but I don't think un under that age group, it's less common. So I don't know, I don't know you tell me. I, it's, it's, I don't think a lot of people do remember him very much. Um, and when they do, it tends to be with the modern take. The modern myth is of him being a bungler who lost the race at the pole, you know, but how can you lose a race you weren't even running? I, don't, I, I personally don't have any time for the modern myth at all, but that's, um, that's how most people seem to me to remember it. And do you think um, that your book, well, people, by seeing um, so many photographs which haven't been seen before, will that, do you think that will change how he's viewed today? Well, I hope it'll give people a more... I mean, I think what's basically happened is you've had the formation of a myth and then an anti-myth, um, which is all to do with the breakdown of Britain as an imperial power and all the rest of it. And I hope um, the pictures will allow Scott as a human being, as, as an explorer, to actually emerge between the two myths um, and that his scientific work and his passion for scientific exploration um, will emerge again as partly as a result of the book. I less remember when he's dying on the Great Ice Barrier, he doesn't write, send the boy into the Royal Navy or make the boy an explorer or anything else when he's writing about the future for his son. He says, make the boy interested in natural history if you can. It's better than games they encourage it at some schools. Science was his passion and that was, that was what he wanted for his, the future of his son. And of course, Sir Peter Scott went on to found the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust and the World Wildlife Fund. He's the inspiration for most of the 20th century conservation movement. And, he's t and you know, this expedition, that, 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 those lines were written out of the friendship between my great uncle and Scott. And that's inspired the whole 20th century conservation movement. It's touched the lives of everybody on the planet, whether they know it or not. I think that's a remarkable legacy. And if the pictures help people to remember Scott's scientific and cultural legacy rather than some silly old myths, then I'll be very happy. That was David Wilson on the photographs from Scott's expedition. Next, I spoke to Tim Grady, who is a lecturer in history at the University of Chester, and wrote a main article in the November issue of the magazine about the memory of the Jewish soldiers who fought for Germany during the First World War. His article focuses on their remembrance in Germany after the Second World War, but I asked him how they were remembered today and how they were also remembered during Nazi Germany. The focus today is very much on the Jewishness of the soldiers. And in that sense, they've somehow become rather separate. 
separated off from the other soldiers, the other German soldiers who died in, in the conflict. So what happens today is um, there are specific and, uh, remembrance events held in a number of the main Jewish cemeteries in Germany. Mm -hmm. Specifically in Munich and Berlin, there's big, uh, big ceremonies held. And in these, various dignitaries come together, members of the Jewish community and so on, and they remember these soldiers. Um, but, but the remembrance of these soldiers is always placed within a, a broader context of Jewish suffering during the Third Reich. And the result of this is often that, I guess, the memory of the soldiers somehow becomes slightly linked to a broader narrative of Jewish, Jewish suffering in 20th century Germany. Mm. And in this way, one ends up with... Um, as I suggest, a slightly different focus on these soldiers than the other soldiers of the First World War. Obviously, the memory of them has evolved um, in various ways um, since the end of the Second World War, and that you explain um, in the article. But um, what happened? I mean, what happened to them during Nazi Germany? Were they just literally? Was the memory of them kind of obliterated as? Um, a large part of the Jewish population was, or it's quite interesting to see how the Nazi regime dealt with um, with the memory of these soldiers. Actually, that in itself is um, another very, very interesting area. Um, one would one would think, or perhaps imagine, that the memory of these soldiers was obliterated. You, you suggest quite quickly. But actually, it was, it was quite a complex process. The problem the Nazi regime faced when it came to the Jewish soldiers was that they, they um, didn't fit that easily within um, the, the National Socialist regime's own, own narratives of the war, own ideas about uh, German and European Jewry. The problem here was that the Nazi regime was trying to do two things. Firstly, it wanted to celebrate the First World War. The First World War was really important to the Nazi regime. And it, a lot of its actions, a lot of the measures it put through, it was trying to raise up those who fought and died in the First World War as right. national heroes. But of course, on the other side, the Nazi regime was trying to um, remove Jews from society. And that included the Jewish soldiers, but but that never fitted to the two those two aims never fitted that well together. Mm. Because how do you remove Jews, including those who fought in the war, but also celebrate Germans who fought in the First World War? Mm. And they, they they always found it difficult to, to kind of mirror and match these two these two aims together. So really, what happened was a, a very kind of slow process of altering and shifting and changing the memory of the Jewish soldiers, which I can yeah. outline a bit for you. Yeah, in what way did they...? Well, the Nazis, as a movement, had always tried to attack the uh, Jews and had always been suggesting that the Jews had never really, you know, fulfilled their their patriotic duty for Germany. Mm. And I thought also the Jews were very much seen as a kind of almost a germ within Germany and something that had um, hindered Germany becoming a, a great power. Well, yeah, absolutely. This was this was the, the kind of view of Hitler in, in 
Mein Kampf. Yeah. He, he outlined the fact that the, the Jews were you know, the root of many of Germany's problems, mm. that they had undermined Germany's war efforts, almost a kind of eating away at the the German, the brave German soldier from within. But the problem was the Nazi regime um, had to make this message clear to German society as a whole. And many Germans had, had fought with Jewish soldiers, had, had, even, had even seen, um, I guess, memorials, remembrance services that mm -hmm. involved German Jews. And they could see that German Jews were a part of the war effort, had fought in the war, and so on and so forth. And for that reason, many, many Germans didn't want to see Jews immediately removed from the celebration of the First World War, the remembrance of the First World War. In the eyes of many Germans, all those who'd fought in the First World War deserved to some extent to be remembered. And that made it quite difficult for the regime to simply say, OK, the German Jews have no place now in our new memory culture. So it took a while for, the, for these changes to take effect. It, it wasn't an instantaneous change in 1933. It, it, it changes sort of trickled through during the 1930s as a whole. And how in practice did that happen and sort of what evidence is there? I mean, because also it depends on, on the extent to which in previous kind of memorial services the Jews, there was... A, sort of a specific mention of the Jews? Absolutely. Again, um, I, would, I would argue that the German Jews were in many ways a, a part of the remembrance culture that developed during the 1920s. They had a role in this and had a role in various different ways. Um, on one side, they, they participated in um, veterans associations. They were often members of the whole sort of spectrum, wide range of number of different veterans associations mm. that existed in German society, they belonged to these. There was also a specifically Jewish veterans association, right. the Reich Association of Jewish Soldiers. But this association also did a lot of work and it met with the other veterans associations. So there was this kind of wider network of veterans mm. that the Jews themselves were a part of. regime do more practically to, to remove that aspect of remembrance? Well, they started off with um, fairly small initiatives. Um, so during 1933, some of the first things that happened were they closed down, they forced the closure of some of the smaller veterans associations, okay. some of the more liberal or left-wing veterans associations that German Jews had belonged to. They started to remove German Jews from one kind of avenue of participation they'd had. Um, during the 
in the 1930s, a lot of the other remaining veterans associations also started to integrate themselves or align themselves more closely with the new regime. And in doing so, forced German Jews out of them. Mm -hmm. So that started to isolate German Jews off from other veterans. But, but after that, it, it, it was um, a kind of... Smaller measures were then taken, which really took, took one to um, the Nuremberg Laws in Tim Grady on the memory of Germany's Jewish soldiers. Thank you for listening to this month's podcast. You can read Colin Jones's article on Madame de Pompadour and Tim Grady's article on the Jewish soldiers who fought for Germany in the First World War in the November issue of the magazine, which is on sale now. You can also listen to previous podcasts by visiting historytoday.com forward slash podcast. Thank you.